Today on Care Under Fire, I am with Diane Hutchinson. Diane has had an extensive career as an ICU nurse and has also worked in a bunch of varied and very challenging environments across the world, including Afghanistan as a nursing contractor, immigration detention on Christmas Island, Iraq with the ADF, and on the ADF Arts Program, which I'm really keen to hear more about today. Welcome to the podcast, Di. Thanks, Emma. Thanks for having me. We usually start at the beginning. So can you tell me about your younger years and what led you initially to study nursing? Sure. So initially I always wanted to be a nurse but uh, got married, uh, had children, that sort of got in the way. And um, uh, eventually, you know, there was many things happened in my life but I suppose the the main thing that really changed my trajectory trajectory was the death of my daughter from leukemia and you know uh, my marriage uh, dissolved and um, I eventually met my current partner and you know had the opportunity to follow my dream that you know some you know quite some years later so you know I started my nursing as a mature age student uh, as an enrolled nurse finally and then uh, while I was doing my enrolled nursing went on to do my RNs. Yeah what are the standout clinical cases through your long career? I know you spent a lot of time in intensive care and worked in paediatric intensive care as well. Yeah, yeah. Are there any any patients that have always stayed with you? Oh gee look my paediatric intensive care time there's many standouts um, that still to this day um, I I guess haunt you in a a way and you know I'm not sure why some stand out more than others Um, certainly you know I can't think of one right off the top of my head uh, while I was working at Children's Hospital, but certainly when I was working remotely in um, northeast Arnhem Land, um, most definitely uh, we had a very long resus of a girl and who had been um, stung by a jellyfish, and mm. you know that that was a a very very long overnight resus uh, that required a lot of support, and um, that young girl survived, which was wonderful but um you know it it just I think throughout my career the importance on communication wherever you are whatever you're doing whatever job you're working is so so important and you know whilst that girl had a good neurological outcome there were things that we could have done better had we had clearer handovers and um, information on uh, what had already occurred prior to her coming to us and prior to her being then airlifted uh, further on for, you know, further critical care. Mm. So you were hanging on to her all night until you had that AME available? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, I think she arrived to us, you know, very late at night, 11-ish, and um, it was 7 a.m. or thereabouts before we moved to uh, through to Darwin and um, you know we resussed her for that entire time so it was a yeah. huge resus. I, I'm loath to say 
too much more because people would identify this case because it was quite big. So yeah. it's probably something that I can't really elaborate more clearly on. You know, we could have done things differently for sure. You know, you have such limited resources in many of these places, which makes it much more challenging to do the work that you do, but it certainly makes you realise that all the skills that you've had from over the years that you can draw together and make things work. Absolutely. Makes you really adaptive, don't you? Yeah. Absolutely, for sure, yeah. So you joined the military kind of later in life. Yes, uh, In your 40s or 50s and you decided to... In my 50s, really, yeah. Yep. How was that joining... I mean, a lot of people join in their early 20s. Yeah, look, look, it was it was excellent. Once again, that was something that was on my bucket list. But um, I had, a you know, a couple of jobs at the time where I was teaching at Southern Cross University uh, permanently. And I also had an education position at my hospital. So I was really reluctant to join because I didn't want my students to suffer through my absence, uh, especially at the university, um, at the hospital, it, it, you're a little bit more replaceable. But at the university, you know, I think students deserve that um, constant from their lecturer. And I certainly just was not be going to be able to give what I wanted to to defence if I was working in that position. So eventually when I decided to join and was accepted, I then resigned both of my permanent positions and, you know, was able to give to defence what I really wanted to be able to do if I was joining as a reservist. And you're a reservist mm. but you really have worked probably like a a lot more than most here as you said you do kind of 100 plus days every year and you have done that for the last decade so plus CFTS and yeah yeah pretty much I think between my other like I was working casually at the hospital and between defense that you know I was really working more than full-time hours for a very long time um but slowly I'm starting to now uh cut back at the hospital because uh, I then went back permanently at the hospital and so I'm starting to slowly cut that back and try and keep my hours to you know full-time or just under yeah. these days yeah you don't like sitting still do you <laughs> no I'm not very good at it Emma I've never been very good at it <laughs> you know I do a lot of volunteer work as well and I'm just really an outdoors person housework's not my favorite thing <laughs> oh, <easy> <laughs> A big kind of milestone in, in your career um, in 2015 you like many other really well qualified military clinicians hadn't yet got that coveted opportunity to deploy to Afghanistan but you made the decision to go over there to Kabul as a civilian nursing contractor mm -hmm. yeah was that mostly because you hadn't been afforded that opportunity with defense and you wanted to kind of experience what it was like uh, no not really I you know, working in other countries was something I always wanted to do. I, uh, while I was working in paediatric intensive care, I worked, uh, I did quite a bit of uh, volunteer work with Open Heart. So we'd travelled to third world countries um, as a volunteer doing uh, open heart cardiac surgery on paediatric patients. Mm. So I, that it always interested me and because I'd gone casual at the hospital once I'd joined Defence, I then started working for a company doing a little bit of fly-in, fly-out work in regional Queensland 
and the company had overseas contracts available. And so that was, those were contracts that were just on offer. So uh, as soon as I saw that they had those opportunities as well, I, I wanted to be able to, you know, take that opportunity and, and run with it. So, yeah, I got to go to Kabul, which was fantastic, uh, great experience. And also good because I had my, my military experience then uh, on my side as well. I think it was very helpful. As you know, mm. we do a lot of training with defence and um, sometimes we, I think we get a little bit, oh, why are we doing this yet again? <laughs> but it all pays off, doesn't it? And certainly working on Kabul Air Base, as soon as the um, Americans realised I had a defence background, there was a few Australian uh, people that I knew there that were working currently deployed there they pulled me straight into their hospital and you know had me on their uh, team as you know with all of the training side of things so that if there was you know a mass has uh, they had every available staff uh, you know on hand when they could yeah. yeah so it was a really fantastic experience did you feel exposed, you know, without the nine mil on your hip yeah. and the structure of um, a military contingent versus going in as a contractor? Yeah, look, I guess I did, but because I hadn't deployed, I didn't really understand that. And so, you know, it was quite odd because when you go in as a, you know, um, a civilian, it's very, very lax. And um, suddenly, you know, everyone would be wearing body armour. And I'm like, well, why are they wearing body armour? You know, <laughs> so then I'd speak to my mm. boss and say, should we be wearing body armour? Because I'd speak to the defence staff and go, oh, yes, you know, we're under, yeah. you know, we're at risk. And so, yeah, so then eventually he's like, oh, well, maybe I can find you some body armour. We'll have to go and look. You know, and a week or so went by and finally they found some ill-fitting body armour. But, you know, it just was, it was a bit of a joke, I guess. But like I said, yeah. I, if I, because I didn't really know except through observation that it was different. Um, but, you know, I mean, we were rocketed while I was there and, you know, I was sitting at a coffee place one day thinking, oh, I wonder what that noise is. and then realized it was a rocket because it landed you know quite close to where we were and so you know um (laughs) i don't know why when you're there you just go oh well that's happened and then you move on but of course you know there was a lot of afghani people in the area that i was in at the time and um you know we then had to find cover and i was the only you know um australian woman in this area with all of these Afghani men. So it was quite an interesting experience and, um, Mm. you know, one that I'll probably never forget. But it's, yeah, then you just move on. Um, The funny thing that came out of that was uh, the Americans were then telling me that, you know, they would get a medal for that. And I thought that was, you know. um, (laughs) Forgetting IDF, I think. You'd be giving everyone a medal, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> you know. Anyway, that was that was a bit of a bit of um, bit of an aside, but quite um, amusing to me. Mm. It raises some ethical challenges, though, when you contracting in war zones is such a big business, and they contract everything, don't they? From cleaning through to healthcare to mm. even some like security assets. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, without yeah. necessarily the full structure of, of a military. So you've got people there that are maybe exposed to a more threat than someone who's also there 50 metres down the road. That's Yeah, that's right. And, and um, you know, where I was, was located was quite away from, you know, the the hospital so I could I could take any of my people to the hospital for life limb or I but otherwise they had to leave the military base and go into Kabul itself and so that really posed a challenge for me I thought Uh, in particular I was not allowed to leave the base no matter what because we were not covered uh, if we were to leave the base And the only way we could get our men or women off the base was to, or the only safe way was to put them in a vehicle that was like a, uh, one of the Afghani people's vehicle and dress them as an Afghani to get them safely to a hospital without them being at risk of, you know, a car bomb or being rocketed. Mm. Yeah. So it was really challenged me. I I had constant conversations with my bosses back in Australia to and questioned that. And because they were contracted by somebody else, they kept clarifying and say and and saying, no, you cannot leave the base. And uh, anyway, eventually I tried to put it that, well if that was someone, if that was your husband or your wife or your child, that was in that situation, would you want me to just bundle them in a car and let them go and they could stop breathing or, but no matter what, they wouldn't change that rule. And eventually I did have to leave the base because not for someone that was ill, because one of our staff um, had been discovered to be doing the wrong thing and was uh, using S8 drugs illegally and so I had to go and do a search of that person's room because my supervisor didn't know what to look for so and Mm. and we yeah that was that was um quite interesting and quite a challenge to see what was going on outside the base as well Mm. yeah Mm. you would have been pretty vulnerable Yeah. yeah yeah I guess so and um you know it wasn't like where we had to go was a reasonable way out and but into another secure compound so it's very interesting to see that side of it as well all just eye-openers aren't they Mm. so your main role over there was to provide primary health care to some other contractors was that the job yes yeah so to fire and rescue and to uh, air traffic control which obviously run the flight line there at Kabul Yeah. yeah yes yeah, that's right. Wow. So, yeah, it was good to get out there and see all of those things from the air because um, I'm not sure if you've been there, Emma, but it's all uh, civilian on one side and military in, like, on the um, base itself. But yeah. on the other side, you can actually see the civilian planes landing. And, you know, one day when we were sitting in one of the buildings, we actually saw a car bomb, you know, explode in front of our eyes on the civilian side where there was quite a number of people killed. Mm. So um, it, it's always very close, I suppose. And yes, the, you know, the risk is there. Yeah, I've only flown in and like hit the tarmac for half an hour and out again. I haven't spent a great right. deal of time there, but in, yeah. you know, in transit to other places. Yep. But yes, yeah. yeah. You know, it's just, I don't know, it seems quite unusual for 
there to be a civilian side and then a, the, the rest is military. It's um, also very close, really. Um, and yeah. in the air traffic control tower is on that side as well. So you have to go right over to that side to get out to the air traffic controllers. Mm -hmm. So what did, um, you know, when you go overseas with defence and you have to, like, go and talk to the unit security officer and get, like, a tick of approval to go on your holiday? Yes. Um, what did they say when you put that paperwork in? <laughs> um, so maybe that paperwork didn't go in, I'm thinking. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, I don't think it would have Fair been enough. approved. I think, um, no. to be honest, back then things were a little bit more relaxed and certainly that changed probably quite soon after that. So, you know, yeah, and maybe I learnt a few more things that I probably should have been sticking to <laughs> from, you know, from then on. Yeah. Interesting experience, though, and a reminder of how exposed contractors are in war in general. Most definitely, yeah, yeah for sure. It's um, it's it's a very different world. But you know, once again, like I said, that military experience that you have, all of the training that you do constantly, really does prepare you for that. Um, mm. And so, it certainly, I'm sure, helped me, and and certainly just having that first experience of of living and working and breathing that austere environment and you know having to live so closely with other people yeah and you mm. also worked prior to that back in 2011 you worked in immigration detention on christmas island as a nurse how yes. was that experience yeah right well look honestly emma i would have to say out of all of my life's experiences that probably was my, my most challenging work Mm. Um, I, I've found that hugely confronting. Um, you know, many people have varied and different views of what we should do with these people. And, and But at the end of the day, they're human beings who have a right to care. And I found that it was, you know, we, we treated them less than humanely. Um, certainly they had, you know, they were... Um, cared for but uh, the people that I worked with uh, or some of the people I worked with I found it um, very very confronting they obviously were there for the wrong reasons and were very disrespectful in the workplace and I, I just really struggled with that because at the end of the day you know my job is to care for people no matter who they are and you know a human being is a human being and they just um should be treated with respect and have the care that they deserve so i i and my partner went for that uh the same trip and you know eventually what you did was you found like-minded people that thought the way that you did and you secluded yourself with them when you weren't at work yeah um, you know and you know you hear stories about people sewing their lips together and um, starving themselves and you know they they are so desperate you know these people they're just so desperate and they're treated you know like almost in inhuman when from the minute they step off that boat um, I've been in the bay when a boat has come in and you know, they put plastic on the seats of the bus so that, you know, they don't contaminate things. They're, they're processed, that's the word that we use, processed, which is, you know, pretty off if you ask me. 
you know, and but we do we do do all of the other things that are important. You know, we we X-ray them, we do bloods, we do, you know, we try to make sure that they're they're well at the time of arrival, and if not, that they're cared for appropriately. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I've saw, I saw you know young men, you know, really well and happy when they came to shore, and their mental health. Um, you know, sliding so rapidly and to them then attempting to hang themselves or sew their lips together. And and I don't know what people think when they talk about sewing someone's lips together, but, you know, they don't have a needle and thread. Um, They had access to dental floss and then they would make their own needle out of some piece of timber and sew their lips together uh, with mm. dental floss, you know, like it it's just terribly, terribly, you know, upsetting to see people yeah. so desperate. And, you know, you, you hear people say, um, oh, you know, how dare they, what sort of person would take their child on a boat or a desperate person would do that. And, and if we haven't lived or breathed what many of these people have lived and breathed, how can we judge? You know, how can we make a decision that they shouldn't, should or shouldn't do something? Uh, so just with regard to the immigration detention, one of the stories I suppose that's, um, that I remember um, vividly was we used to do what we call a Panadol round to the compounds where people were accommodated. There were big open areas where um, their accommodation sort of branched off um, into rooms that sometimes had eight or four bunks with an ensuite, and um, it was so overcrowded there were people on the floors in those rooms. Uh, and one of the days that I was there, an emergency was called, and it was in the compound that I was in. And so I radioed back and said that you know I was there and I would go and investigate. And the young man that called the emergency had realised his mate hadn't come out of the room for some time and had gone in and found him with um, self-harm injuries and had called the emergency. And he was quite hysterical when we went across the compound. And, you know, we um, became at, you know, at a very high risk because the all of the people in the compound became very agitated and angry and um, were, you know, uh, came in close to us. And, you know, we had every opportunity for them to attack us and, and certainly for us to die in that particular instance mm. and it was pretty overwhelming um you always go with a security guard but you know that doesn't always guarantee your safety and so fortunately the young man I called to him to come to me and um I said to him do you speak English and he did and I just asked him to uh hold the crowd to to tell them they must calm down and that they must you know, a week for us to do or for me to do my job and look after your friend. I can't do that with them being angry at me. So he did that. And um, I also then said to him, they need to step back so that I can care for this man. And, you know, when I opened the door to the bathroom, um, it was like, you know, something out of psycho. He had managed to get a razor blade and slash his body, all of his upper body and his arms. And, you know, there was blood all over the walls of the bathroom and because he'd left the showers on and hot, 
the steam was, you know, that all the blood was dribbling down the walls of the bathroom and um, he was, you know, semi-conscious sitting on the toilet. So it, it was just, you know, really, mm. um, I guess, frightening. But, um, you know, fortunately, like I said, that young man was able to keep the crowd calmer and, you know, while, while we were, you know, I had radioed for the stretcher and a vehicle to take him back. Uh, we had the opportunity, you know, I had the opportunity to speak to them, the people, but through him and I would, was looking at them and telling them, you know, this man will be okay. He's okay. We need to take him back for more care, but he is fine and he is safe and that, you know, thank you for being respectful to me so that I can do my job. And he just kept telling them that. Um, and we got him out and sadly they'd sent a ute with an open back on it um, and we had to put him in that ute and get him back to the clinic with the sun, you know, uh, bearing or boring down on him. And, and you know, I was told to get back into the vehicle and I refused and said I would be staying in the back of the vehicle with him uh, where I could shade his eyes and get him back to the clinic. Uh, when I got back to the clinic, one of the other nurses was being, you know, extremely disrespectful to him and I told her to leave um, if she couldn't be respectful to the man to, to get out and and she got out. And they're just some of the things that you experience in in that kind of environment and, you know, I respect goes a long way and, mm. um, you know, what goes around comes around and, you know, those people just want to be respected and to be human and eventually they learn that you're one of the people that really is there to care for them. Yeah. Mm. It doesn't, let's face it, it doesn't take that long to be kind. No, it doesn't. Kindness goes a long way. Yeah, that's right. Then you dish out that respect and it's returned no matter what setting you're in. Yes. And then you, that's probably what prevented you having a whole hostile crowd on top of you that day absolutely absolutely and um you know it's all those once again like i've said earlier those experiences that help you keep a level head at the time isn't it you know um yeah, yeah sometimes afterwards you reflect and think far out <laughs> but you know when you're doing it you're just yeah. doing it and you're being assertive and and kind and respectful and you know hoping it works out Hundred sutures later, and yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, certainly. Yeah. We, we we put close to two hundred stitches in him that day. It took us quite a long wow. time to sew him up, but you know, during that time, you know, I think for him, uh, having us there and and being kind to him during the process was um, certainly you know nice for him. Did you feel you developed compassion fatigue at any point, or were you able to still? maintain that caring nature in that environment mm. no I definitely I think compassion fatigue is certainly there but I just really certainly cared I think I cared too much I think there was quite a few of us that cared too much when when they when they come ashore they are given a number and they're only referred to by that number and um, I would always attempt, it's interesting because soon soon they work out who you are and whether you're caring or you're not. And um, once they worked that out, I would always go out and try and say their names when I was calling them mm. into the clinic. 
and then they'd, you know, have a real jolly old laugh with you and, you know, a bit of fun. And then I'd have to say their number because they couldn't understand me. But, you know, it just, I think for me, showing them that I cared by trying and attempting their name was always, you know, a good thing for them. And like I said, I think that, yes, you know, it's distressing and I felt like I was betraying them when I left the island. Uh, One of the things when we did leave the island, one of the young men that I had gotten to know quite well had been granted um, visa Mm. And when we were at the airport, he he was catching the same plane as we were and he came to me and he pointed to his number on his backpack and he said, I hate this number. And I said, well, let's fix that right now. And we took the number off his bag and I said, can I please have this? And he said, yes, and that's still on our fridge today. You know, and there was another man there who who we had all gotten quite close to as well, and his teeth were rotten. Um, he had none left. The dentist had had to take them out because we don't replace them. And when he had come on the boat, he had come with what money he had um, and was willing to pay to have them fixed. He didn't want us to do that, but he just wanted to have some teeth, you know, um, and that was something that he would ha- he had to wait for till he you know, got back onto Australian soil to have corrected. So it was, whilst I felt like I was betraying them when we left, it was really nice to be flying out with people that had been granted a Mm -hmm. visa. What do you think attracts you to uh, these deployments or contracts or cases over the years and working in these environments? That's a good question. Yeah, good question, Emma. I don't know. I'm, it's like I'm a glutton for punishment. Mm. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, maybe because as a mother, you know, I had seen sometimes, like I'd seen that compassion from people, from nurses in particular, um, and from some of the doctors that cared for my daughter. And then I'd seen the ones that didn't. And, you know, I just didn't ever want to be one of those people. And maybe that experience that I've had with her has helped me to be the person I am today. In fact, it has. I have no doubt about Mm. that. Um, It certainly helped shape the person that I am today. Yeah, I I don't think I've got a clear answer for that one. It's certainly that's still me today that is attracted to that kind of thing, even though, you know, I think – Compassion fatigue is something that you experience. You eventually push through that and move on um, again, mm. yeah, I, I think. Um, I did do a t- talk once for Red Cross and someone asked me that question once I'd finished my talk about similar to what we're talking about today. And he, he said, how do you care for yourself? And that question was one of the questions that really threw me on the day and I felt quite emotional um, when he asked me that question and I said you know I actually said to the group look I just don't think I can answer that question today because I don't think we're very good at caring Mm. for ourselves in particular nurses would you agree with that yeah I think we're definitely in the giving profession Mm. and if you don't care and you don't go and uh, perform those acts of kindness then you're not a very good nurse (laughs) for one Um, and so yeah I think 
we probably ignore our own needs on a regular basis. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think we do. And but I I also think that it's all of those experiences from, you know, life's experiences and uh our professional experiences that help you still be compassionate but get better at separating yourself emotionally I think mm. yeah um you also have the opportunity to deploy with the ADF back in 2017 to Iraq what was your role over there so I, w- I went over there as the ICU nurse um yeah uh, that was you know another good experience you know to be there as a military person was you know a, a privilege and it was nice to have the opportunity to do that I mean not everyone gets that opportunity as you know and it's um you know there's not many nurses that I've spoken to that have joined for any other reason but to deploy and um yeah I think there's only one nurse in fact that I've ever spoken to that said you know I'm I'm just here to care for people and if it's on Australian soil that's that's what I'll do I'm happy with that you know but I think ideally most of us really want to deploy yeah and for me you know, that was a real privilege to be able to get that opportunity. Yeah. And you've also been involved with the RFS for many years. And Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember you telling me, uh, obviously, Coffs Harbour and that region got smashed by the 2019 bushfires. And I remember yes. you telling me afterwards that it was the biggest fire you'd personally ever fought. Yes. What was that experience like? fighting that fire in your own backyard yeah so um I remember getting the call that day and uh we I went out with a very small crew and we were to join into another crew so uh we I had a driver and I'm a crew leader uh, uh in our brigade and I had a what do we call a bf or a basic firefighter with me who had very little experience and driving up to that fire um for some reason we just got lost in the radio comms so once we left our area and joined uh, the task force that we were heading to they seemed to lose we we sent three brigades and the three of us all got lost in communication it was it was so out of control and so terrifying that uh, whoever was you know doing the radio comms from their end just couldn't have kept up they had people you know, uh, begging, calls coming through, people begging them for us to come and save them. Um, When we were heading towards the fire, we just had police cars coming towards us telling everyone to get out, get out, get out. Uh, And when we we stopped at the last roadblock to get through, the police officer was clearly freaking, you know, like he was really, really under pressure. There was people, you know, begging him to send fire trucks here, there and everywhere. But um, we we hadn't any clear instruction at that stage. And, of course, we were out of radio comms from our uh, Mid-North Coast team. And so we, we proceeded to go towards the fire. And I... I was willing to go through the fire, but my uh, driver and my basic firefighter were clearly not comfortable with that. And so we backtracked for a while, waited 
for a little while and then we attempted to get through again and we we then just put our water spray at what we call our wheel sprays on our truck which protect our tires um, and to push the fire back um, on the roadside if that makes sense and then we mm. continued to push through the flames were low enough to get through to the other side to be able to try and do um, some property pro protection on the other side of um, you know this fire that was going over the road um, and so it was you know it was a pretty scary experience with a crew that were afraid and and you're always afraid but you go with what experience that you have and um, you know I always want to be sure that my crew's safe and so you know if they're not comfortable I won't go there um, but once we went back the second time and could get through and could see that we were clear enough to get through they were happy to proceed yeah so we just we did we saved one property um, a little bit further up the road and um, fortunately they had a pool so we had water to um, draft from there because you only have what's in your tank and mm. you need to keep enough water in your tank to protect yourself if there's a fire overrun um, and yeah. yeah so that was good we met up with one of the other crews um, and helped protect that property and then we we really moved from property to property with ember attacks and um, tried to protect those properties with homeowners that had decided to stay in their properties so biggest thing you know in in those situations is trees falling on um, and you know watching your your crew um, and trying to keep everyone safe while you're doing the job that you're doing so um, you know, and then seeing the people that were prepared, um, that had left their properties, that had started generators with sprinklers running over their homes and, you know, were so well prepared that their property was still standing at the end of the fires and um, and then to see how many properties were just, you know, completely destroyed. Mm. Yeah, mm. Pretty, pretty exhausting experience. And when we finally did get back out to our zone and get back into our radio comms, our you know, the guy that was on for our area at the time was like, you know, we lost you. And I said, yes, and no one found us. <laughs> but, you know, mm. as, soon as, I, as soon as I could, um, had had time to give him a mobile phone call, I did that as well just to let him know that we were safe. Yeah, they would have been quite concerned, I imagine. I can't, ima I can't even, even imagine finding something that epic and, that huge and and trying to make a dent with your asset that you have it's incredibly brave yeah and just just you know keeping that level head while that's all happening and making sure that you're monitoring and it's you know the guy in the back of the truck he was just you could just see him going oh my word there's no way that you know I know what I'm going to be doing for that so you know you just you really just have to it's the experience that you have um, and you go with what you've got. And once again, it's all those years of all of those experiences that help you have the skills to, to do what you do, isn't it? Yeah. I hate smoke. <laughs> I hate not being out of breath. <laughs> oh, look, I, I can, yeah, I can smell it. Like, honestly, people will be, I'll be somewhere and I'm going, I can smell smoke. And they're like, what? You know, but I've got the nose for it. I'm constantly, yeah. especially, you know, um, we're we're at so much risk again this year for fires, and um, you know I'm constantly on the alert. And you know I've moved from an acre and a half to 14 acres, and 
I'm now constantly clearing and preparing for the bushfires this year. Yeah. So, um, and the house that we're currently building has got, you know, roof sprinklers. We've got a fire pump. We've got a dam. We've got, you know, we're we've putting, you know, fire retardant deck. You know, the walls. You know, we're trying to be as prepared as we can be for this house, so that, you know, if we are confronted ourselves, we'll be ready. Yeah, it's a the realistic side of living where we do. Mm. So the other thing, Di, you've been really involved with over the years is the ADF Arts Program and ADF Arts for Recovery, Resilience, Teamwork and Skills, I believe that stands for. Can you just sort of outline what the program is and what your role within it? Sure. So my role is as the lead nurse. I've been involved in the program since it's began, since the trial phase, and uh Part of my role is to make sure that we recruit the right people to work for us, so the right nurses in particular. Uh, and, you know, these these people are very sensitive, so they we invite people to come along to the program that have become unwell during service. So that is not about deployment. It's about anything in service. So they might have been diagnosed with cancer. They might have... Uh, been injured on deployment or injured not on deployment. They may have developed mental health concerns, you know, or they may have become wounded. Uh, mm -hmm. So everyone's welcome to come along um, as long as, you know, they've become ill during service. So one of the things that I do is I interview each potential participant that comes along. And so we um, need to make sure that they're. Uh, are long enough in their recovery to get the best out of the program. They only ever get one opportunity to come on the program because we take maximum 26 people twice a year. Mm -hmm. And so if we if we don't, if they get it wrong or I get it wrong, then they're not going to get the benefit that they really need. So for instance, if someone were currently undergoing chemotherapy regularly or needing to see their doctor once a week and their physio once a week and their mental health professional once a week, it's not a good time for them to come. We try to take them out of the defence environment. We have civilian names. We don't miss, you know, we don't use rank. We don't use mm -hmm. uniform. And we try to keep them as appointment-free as possible during that time. So if someone had been you know, recently diagnosed with PTSD and was maybe highly medicated and still requiring hospital admissions, it wouldn't be a good time for them to come along to the program. But they may have been diagnosed a year ago and they've done some, had a, you know, a hospital admission and, you know, going along quite well in their recovery, but just needing something more. Yeah. So the program, um, it offers three streams. We do music and rhythm, we do creative writing and we do visual arts. So they'll come along and end up in one of those streams for a month. And the aim of the program is for them to take a skill away that they can use in their recovery. So, and we do all of that out of at a university um, with professional mentors and um, we use defence uh, musicians uh, to do the music and rhythm side of thing so it just really takes them out of that defense 
environment where they're quite indoctrinated a lot of the time. And, you know, we have people that come along that are still quite unwell, but uh, looking to recover. And just watching them, you know, they've lost their sense of worth, some of them, that some of them have, you know, become socially isolating, them. Uh, some of them are not comfortable to be around people in general, um, some of them are in soldier recovery centres, you know, so they come from all over Australia, from many different backgrounds. We have Army, Navy, Air Force, and we have, you know, I'll use the Army um, example from privates to brigadiers that come along on the program and just yeah watching them from the first week to the last week and uh, seeing the changes is incredible to watch um, and our last program we trialed was off base as well and you know we just had an incredible group of people who just came along so far by the end of the program and were just doing so much better and felt that they had really come to something that was so worthwhile and so different to what they've ever experienced before. It's cool to have a creative outlet as opposed to a physical one, which we are probably in the ADF probably a bit more traditionally focused that way, you know. Most definitely. You have sport, you do gym, you, you know. You yeah. have that sort of physical outlet, but a, a creative one that you can use with injuries and and you can take that skill with you. That's right. And I've seen some of the stuff they've produced and it's really high standard. Yeah, <laughs> um, it is incredible, incredible some of the work. And, and, you know, and some of it's not and that's okay. And a lot of them say, oh, you know, but I don't have a skill. And like, we, we don't have to have one. And in fact, we'd prefer that you don't, Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're like, oh, right. Okay. And, you know, and, but like you said, some of the work that they've produced is really incredible. And especially the creative writing group, it's, you know, so incredible, some of the work that they produce. And, you know, some of them have started books while on the program and are continuing to write their books and remain in contact with the the mentors from the university um, all, you know, all the time. So, yeah, it is, it's an incredible program that, um, you know, more and more we're now getting oversubscribed to because, the word is getting out and uh, to other members who are now saying, oh, wow, that just sounds like the right thing for me. We've got some of the uh, psychologists referring people, certainly some of the rehab staff referring people. Some of them, you know, we had a young guy who came along and said, I had never heard anything about that and they said I should come. And in that first week I thought, what have I done? And he goes, now I don't want to go home, you know. So, mm. yeah, it's just makes me smile seeing how you know how they come how well they come along during that time what do you think are the the big outcomes that help people become more resilient or the key things that uh, help them recover from whatever it is that um, has been a challenge I guess it's so individual It's a broad question. Yeah, it is very individual, very, but I think one of the greatest things about the program is the fact that they are with a group of similar people and they see that other people are in similar situations and they that perhaps sometimes their situation is really not as bad as the next person's or vice versa. And you watch them 
you know, part of our, like, we're there to support them, but we try to monitor and eventually, like, you will watch them start to care for each other, which is really nice. And so, and, you know, it's what I call a kind program. People are kind to one another. And I ask them to try and come along with an open mind and leave, you know, where possible their negativity behind and come in with, you know, a completely open mind to what they might get out of the program. And so seeing them become more sociable again and more confident again and, you know, some people coming in going, I'm only, I only will do this arts and we challenge them in that first day to do, to challenge themselves and choose something that they would least be comfortable with. And we'll get the odd people that will do that and come to me at the end of the program and say, I'm so glad you said that and I'm so glad I chose this because it has challenged me and I'm so much better, you know. And, you know, like one gentleman was saying to me, you know, at the beginning of the program I couldn't I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't spend more than 10 minutes doing a task, um, my concentration's improved, I'm sleeping better, you know, I can't believe the change. And when I talked to my partner at home, she said to me, you sound like a different person, what's going on, you know. Um, and, and just the comments from families as well that when they come down in the last week, it, you know, of how different they are. And so there's just lots of positives that come from it. And like you said, it's, you know, I think each person is different, but uh, certainly that that being in that group really is that supportive type of environment where, you know, they're just out of that defence environment. It's healthier for them, I think. Yeah. How do you manage some self-care? Because I imagine if you've got people yeah. that are really unwell and you're spending the, a lot of time close with them, <laughs> getting yeah. to know them yeah. uh, in a residential program, how do you step away from that without feeling completely exhausted? <laughs> yeah, look, I, I don't think we... I don't think I don't we don't specifically and I'll say we we don't specifically do anything but I think and and you'll equate this to your nursing profession um you know we talk about debriefing and the importance of debriefing and so mm. whilst we don't have a specific debrief we certainly group ourselves each day when when time allows and talk about what's going on and you know I have a um you know, one of my colleagues who's been with the program for a very long time as well, not quite as long as me, where we talk to each other constantly. Um, and so I think that helps us get through the program. By the end of the program, we're always exhausted, um, but it's a nice kind of exhausted, if that mm. helps. You know, it's, um, I suppose, because you have a, a, a small amount of satisfaction that, you know, it's gone as well as it possibly can and so um, I think the beauty of being a reservist and going back to your civilian job then even though it's still caring it's a different kind of caring and it just really helps you switch I suppose away from that but we don't specifically do anything and it's just the same as at work Emma when something terrible happens um what do we do? We talk in the tea room, you know, with the people yeah. that were there during that experience. And in my experience, if you bring someone in from elsewhere, people 
clam up. They don't feel comfortable because that person didn't experience that themselves. And yeah, um, certainly even when we get back in from a fire, um, we do the same thing. We'll, you know, we'll get to the fire shed and we'll talk about, you know, how that was for everybody. And it's it's always incredible how every you could have ten people involved in something and everyone's perception will be different because mm. uh, we all experience things differently, don't we? Yeah, and stress response is different. But yeah, how important yeah. to uh, debrief with your team yeah. and check in with them later as well. And yeah, yes, that's right. And I think you know that's a really pertinent point. Checking in is the important thing. Um, but we, you know, we do. We are a very small group of people when we are there. So we do. I suppose we just do it unknowingly that we're constantly debriefing. If that makes mm. sense. And this all started with the play at the beginning, didn't it? And it turned into this whole creative. Yes, that's right, the long way home. So the then um, Chief of Defence Force um, saw a play overseas that he wanted to emulate and brought it back it brought it back to Australia and and set a staff up to set that play in motion. Yeah. And so that was always his aim was to bring something like this program out of the play. Yeah, and, it, and it's worked really well. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Yes, it has, yeah. You've basically been the poster girl for austere environment nursing and compassion. <laughs> thank you for sharing some of those career highlights with us and thank you for your service yeah, very to the community and, and country. Oh, thank you, Emma. Well, thank you and thank you for what you're doing. It's a real credit to you that um, that you're doing these podcasts for people to listen to and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. You're welcome. It's good to get these stories out there. <laughs>